Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. Matthew Lynch. He's a professor or an associate professor of the Old Testament at Regent College. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, the flood and Old Testament violence and things like that. Uh, this conversation is based on his book, Flood and Fury. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Zach. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm super excited for today's conversation. Um, and we're going to talk about like questions about like violence and the flood and these questions sure. that come up in the Old Testament. So to get things yeah. started, Matt, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, things like that? Sure. Yeah, I uh, I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania, so near, not too far from where you grew up um, and uh, married with two kids here. And I got into the Old Testament actually when the uh, same semester that I met with my wife in Israel. We were both doing a semester abroad, and um, I, at the time, I was a different major from my undergrad, and I was studying intertestamental literature and the land of the Bible and um, context of the modern Middle East, and it just kind of captivated me, and I wanted to pursue biblical studies more deeply. So when, after that semester in Israel, which was really formative, I decided to switch my emphasis to biblical studies and pursued that at um, undergrad level, then at Regent College and Emory University, where I did my PhD. And um, I wrote my PhD in the book of Chronicles, which is very far from what I'm doing in this book. Um, but I, I was interested in dynamics like intertextuality, so how the, how scripture uses scripture. Um, and Chronicles is a great book to study that with. And then um, my other research is in the book of Isaiah, where I've also done a good bit of um, thinking and writing, and uh, of course, this subject of violence. So I wrote, I wrote the book uh, portraying violence um, just before uh, publishing Flood and Fury, and so now uh, that's sort of like a precursor to this one. It's not really covering the same territory. Uh, in fact, it covers different territory. Uh, but I wanted to do a ground up study of how the Bible itself thinks about violence when it's thinking about it as a problem. And and how it depicts it, and then to then to approach that more top down question, which is what I'm looking at in this book, which is how do we wrestle with and think about problems of violence that we encounter in Scripture? So, can you give a little bit before we get into like the contents of the book, like maybe like mm -hmm. the backstory, um, like sure. what inspired um, you writing this? Yeah, uh, th there are a few contributing factors, um, not least of which is when my first day in grad school here at Regent College in Vancouver was 9-11 in um, 2001. And uh, obviously that was a very, um, you know, troubling day for for a lot of us. And, and it also kind of set the tone in terms of the geopolitical issues happening in the background of while I was studying the Bible at grad school. So now, as you probably know, like the geopolitical context of our study is not insignificant when we're thinking about the Bible and its relevance in the world. And so this was during not only 9-11, but also the Iraq invasion in 2003. And it's, you know, I was taking a class in the book of Joshua. And um, meanwhile, the U.S. was engaged in this, um, you know, war and invasion in Iraq. So it was hard not to put the two in conversation with each other and just think through um, what do I think about violence in the Bible? Um, uh, and what do I think about the ethics of violence today? And, uh, you know, I wrote papers on that and 
So it was in my mind while I was in grad school. And then when I started teaching at Westminster Theological Center in the UK, um, it, it was a question that came up a lot in the classroom. And so students wanted to think through um, what we do with these problematic passages in the Bible. And I think, I think they weren't like a lot of people today, they're just not wanting simplistic answers. And they have a, a pretty good nose for detecting when someone is giving them a nice, neatly wrapped up and tidy answer for a very complex, challenging issue. So it was more like that students wanted to wrestle through the question rather than, than just wanting an answer. Um, so I, th I think that, well, that's an important dynamic when, when thinking about the way people approach questions now, which might be a little bit different than maybe they did a generation ago. Um, and so, so then I, um, you know, taught on this for a while, started writing just like blog posts and things like that around this subject, reviewed a couple books and, and then wanted to sort of probe the question for myself. And that's where I wrote that previous book, Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible. And then, uh, out of that wanting to have a book that is more accessible to the wider church, but still deals with some of the challenging interpretive issues as well. It doesn't, doesn't kind of hit the, the most, most accessible level, um, but tries to write accessibly about things that acad um, academic scholarship has, has already uh, puzzled through with regard to this question. Um, so that's, that's a the quick rundown. Um, there are a lot of other sort of encounters along the way that, that contributed to this, but um, as, as you probably know from teaching, you know, students uh, constantly bring these questions to the table. And, and I think that we're in a, we're in an era where we're sort of confidence in the Bible is pretty low. And, and so um, there's a sense that the Bible has a lot to answer for itself. And, and I wanted to not just sort of respond to that question, you know, putting the Bible sort of in the, in the dock, so to speak, um, but also to let the Bible turn around and ask us questions about our own violence and our own ethics. And so I was also in this book and the previous one trying to find a two-way conversation so that, so that scripture can both question us and we can ask our questions of scripture. So what exactly, Matt, is the problem of Old Testament violence that you address? Like when we're thinking yeah. about what people are wondering, like, what's the problem here? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. It, so um, I talk at the end of the book about wicked problems. Um, so a wicked problem is, is a problem, not that's morally wicked, um, but it's a way of categorizing a kind of problem. Uh, for which there is widespread disagreement about the nature of the problem. <laughs> um, obviously, the solution to the problem then, and even how to recognize if you found a solution. Uh, and an analogy would be poverty. So how exactly do you define poverty just in terms of economics or education or equality or um, you know, what factors do you bring into that question? Uh, and I think it's similar with violence that that for some people, they read scripture and they would say, well, there's there's really no problem here. Um, humans are sinful and God judges it and God can do what God wants. Um, and I think the problem with that approach is that it ignores the Bible's own critiques of violence. And 
its own questions to God about violence. Um, so Habakkuk cries out to God about how long violence will persist in the land and so on. So um, there, are, there are different types of problem, and that's why I prefer to talk about the problems, plural, of violence in the Bible. So you have things like divinely enacted violence in the flood, where God wipes out 99.999% of all living creatures uh, and plant life on earth. And, um, and then you have divinely mandated violence, like the book of Joshua, where God commands his people to carry out the violence. Or you have things like violent laws, where a rebellious son is stoned or an adulterer is stoned, um, which doesn't seem to fit our our kind of conception of what counts as proportionate justice. Uh, or you could talk about violent prayers. Should we pray them in the book of Psalms? Or prophetic depictions of God's future judgment using graphic violence and even sexualized violence in the, in the prophets. So there's a whole range. And then there's narratives that just describe violent events without much evaluation. Uh, so you can see that like each one of those requires its own type of response and thinking. And so um, I didn't try to cover all those in this book because I, I think it's just, you know, hopefully we can get the ball rolling and set the tone in terms of a, a one way to respond to these and let other people kind of follow up in all those different areas. But um, I wanted to take the two biggest ones that I encountered a lot, and that was the flood story and the conquest. That's why I chose to, to go with those. So when we're looking at this question of like Old Testament violence, you talk about the conquest and the flood stories. One of the things that I wonder is like, um, is like, what about like our starting point? Like, I think some people mm -hmm. look at this um, and might be confused um or even like frustrated um yeah. like do you think it'd be okay for like a christian to look at like these these texts and be like i'm frustrated with this like i have yeah. to deal with this like i have to deal with a god that floods the world um yeah. and like a god that like commands like the conquest of the canaanites like if that's the case like well, it's just like that's a lot to wrestle with yeah i think i think it's totally acceptable to bring who we are and where we're at with scripture before god because um, I don't think it's terribly useful just to say that you can't have a particular feeling or response to the Bible um, if that's where you're at. And so denying our full self before God is never a good idea um, as we encounter Scripture. So I think it's it's good and right even to, and we see this modeled in, in regard to that and different issues in the Psalms where the psalmist brings um, his lament before God, uh, in which includes complaints about God, about the world, about his friends, about his enemies, about his the condition of his body. You know, all these things are legitimate to bring as complaints and concerns before God. So why not God's words to us that we find hard? Um, the prophets even complain about how difficult God's words are that are given to them. So now that doesn't mean that that's the sum total of what our response should be. But I think it's a fully legitimate starting point. And then from there, we can begin to wrestle honestly with, okay, here's where I'm at right now. And I don't want to stay here necessarily. So God help me 
move forward in this. And I, I might not be able to arrive at a solution, but hopefully I can I can come to a, a better place in a place of a peace or just um, uh, an acceptance of what you said in your word. So that's helpful. What about the idea? Um, I, I love the idea of the psalm. Sorry, coming back for just a second. Yeah. Um, and like it can really help us to like picture like how can we actually interact with God? Um, yeah. And like it seems like like if you read the psalms, like it is OK to be frustrated with God and things like that. And yeah. I find that at least personally helpful um, when we get into like interpreting these texts. Uh, hmm. What does it mean for like scripture to be focusing on scripture? Yeah, so um, I use the idea of scripture focusing scripture, not necessarily on scripture, but but sort of um, like if you think about a lens and what it does is it it takes the image and it you turn it and it brings it into focus, um, and that's sort of the idea of what I think certain parts of scripture do for us in relation to other ones. Um, there's there's a an approach to interpreting the Bible that is often referred to by Christians, and it says that you should interpret the less clear text in light of the clearer ones. Um, and I prefer, like, I think that's that's an okay way to go sometimes, and I think as a general principle, it's fine. Um, but I think there's another dynamic at play in the shape of scripture that we have to attend to. Like, Bible, the Bible isn't given to us as, a, as just a compendium um, with topics arranged alphabetically for us and we just flip to them but it's given to us in a certain form meant to be read in a particular order and so i think attending to the shape of scripture helps us think about problems like violence and and so in the creation story in genesis 1 and 2 and the primeval history in genesis 1 to 11 those are, are given to us in order to um, kind of set the terms for reading the rest of the Bible. And so I think it's important in that light that what we get in Genesis 1 and 2 is a vision of a world that was made and made good, loved by God, um, is defined by peace and right relating wholeness and right relationships between men and women. There's a, a kind of a, a egalitarian mutuality between male and female. Um, there's a right relationship with creation and with God. And all those things are, are giving us a vision of how things should go. Um, and then when we get to all the violent stuff that follows from it, when things go wrong, we see that like this constitutes the brokenness of the world that God is working to mend and heal. And so... I think that sort of lens is important to see not only what should have been the case in the past, but where redemptive history is moving. And so then we have a, a sense that whatever we make of everything in the middle of the story, the the arc of of history is is moving towards shalom and and peace and the restoration and even the exceeding of that original creation in God's redemptive work. And, and there are other ways that scripture also refocuses scripture for us. In other words, it kind of helps us frame other parts of the Bible um, and understand them. Um, another example would be the, the way that certain claims about God have an interpretive priority for us. So the, 
one prominent example of that is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is the part where Moses is on the mountain with God after Israel had sinned. And God reveals his character and says, the Lord, the Lord of God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, showing steadfast loyalty to um, thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished, but punishing children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And that, I didn't get that quote exactly right, but that's the idea. Um, but that that little description of God's character highlights God's overwhelming uh, mercy and um, and grace and steadfast loyalty extended through thousands of generations, but also God's justice extended to third and fourth generation. So we have this picture of a God who's merciful and just, um, who shows compassion and judges, but the two are not equal. And, and so there's a priority given to grace and mercy in God's character, even though he also judges. Um, and that, that passage, uh, the reason it has such priority is because it's quoted 13 or 14 times throughout the rest of, of the Old Testament. And sections of it are quoted all over the place. And so it's like the rest of the Bible shows us that writers are constantly going back to that text to think about what God's character is like at the end of the day. And, and so I think when we get kind of into an issue like violence in the Bible, God's violent actions, God's wrath, um, whatever it might be, it's, it's important to let the Bible sort of hit the pause button, pan out and say, yes, God judges, but look at the proportionality when you we sort of set it alongside his mercy to remind ourselves constantly that um, even though we might not be able to puzzle out how the two work together, there's something about God's character and his way of dealing in the world that um, that shows us his superabundant mercy, that that exceeds everything else by far. And so that's the kind of refocusing on God's character that I think scripture does. It doesn't mean we brush the other stuff aside, but it puts it in perspective and helps us reframe it. So those are two examples, the beginning of the story and God's character that help us think about how to refocus those other texts that, that might give us problems. Okay, this is really helpful. Thank you, Matt. So I think it's helpful for people listening. And if I understand you right, Matt, that like when we look mm -hmm. at something like the flood narrative or the conquest yeah. narrative. And we're thinking like how we're going to make sense of these. It's important that like we realize that like the scripture that kind of like um, that's going to help us focus and understand this almost um, that mm -hmm. scripture focusing on scripture where we're looking at things like, well, how did God intend for the world to be created? And looking at the creation yeah. narrative or looking yeah. at like these fundamental scriptures, like you referenced in Exodus um, where it seems like, like old Testament authors are using these all the time to help yeah. us like focus on what is God like and like we can use mm -hmm. these things to help us understand these narratives as we dive into them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So um you know I like the example of Psalm 103 where you have Israel sort of reflecting back on their history. And and it, Psalm 103 says like you showed your ways to Moses and then it goes on to cite a version of Exodus 34 6 and 7. But then when it gets to the part about God judging and punishing, it says um, that you didn't punish us according to our sins and according to what they deserve. So it's like God's mercy even exceeded the judgment 
expressed in 34, 6, and 7. And, and so I think that sort of retrospective look at their own history means that Israel was, Israel had a way of, of summarizing the nature of God's character, um, a God that they lived with, like <laughs> they lived with the God of the Old Testament. And, and so I think we should listen to their testimony uh, as they cast their mind back over history of what the defining qualities of God's character are. And, and that's what I mean about like letting it sort of reframe things or focus things for us is not like we take a text that shows judgment and then we, you know, turn the lens and it becomes a happy text. Um, but rather the lens enables us maybe to pan out to see the sea of mercy that surrounds that text. Um, and and to to kind of put it in perspective that way. Are there any other like maybe like lenses? Um, you talked about like Exodus thirty four and like looking at the creation account. Um, are there any other things mm -hmm. that like I don't know if you want to describe them as lenses or whatnot, but like that help yeah. us like when we under make sense of like the flood and conquest narrative. Yeah, there's um, one of the. One of the frequent commands in scriptures to meditate on the law day and night and and psalm 119 psalm 19 they talk about the delight of doing so and and i think that's important for thinking about laws like we see in deuteronomy 7 the command to wipe out the canaanites you know what's delightful about that what you know what does it mean to meditate on that law and um and i think the stories in scripture are designed to help us meditate more deeply on those laws that on the surface might seem kind of straightforwardly violent or genocidal even. Um, and to do that by looking at the stories of particular people. And so I think that's what Joshua is doing when the book opens and Joshua himself tells the people that they're about to go into the land and they're going to have this big, you know, God is going to give them the land. They're about to meet the Canaanites. And you would think that Joshua would give them a pep talk or some sort of military strategy talk or something like that. But his, his command to the people is to meditate on the law day and night. That's their best strategy for having success in the land, which sounds crazy from a military standpoint. Like that's not, it's not good battle strategy. And, uh, but I think the, the point from a story perspective is that we're about to encounter some stories that are going to be meditations on the law. And so it's not surprising that the first character we meet is Rahab, the Canaanite. And so in the background, I think we're meant to have Deuteronomy 7 there, which says, you know, these seven nations you're about to encounter, Girgashites, Jebusites, um, Hittites, um, Hivites, all these, all these groups. Um, you're to show them no mercy, wipe them out completely. Well, what about Rahab? And, and so I don't think Joshua is undermining the law, but actually is meditating on the law in light of God's character. And so we see that Rahab um, is a Yahweh fear, that she recognizes what God's done, that she provides cover for the spies, that um, she knows who God is. And so the inclusion of Rahab and her whole household, 
um, whoever all that included, which would have been family and dependents, um, is not in contravention of the law. Um, but rather, it's a it's a deeper fulfillment of what the law is aiming at, because if you read the kind of law in its totality, um, or we could read the book of Ruth alongside the prohibition in Deuteronomy 23 to exclude the that the Moabite is not to be admitted into the assembly to the 10th generation. And so, well, what about Ruth? She says to Naomi, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Um, she clings to Naomi as a vulnerable, uh, in Hebrew, a ger, a, um, a sojourner. And, and her inclusion is not just a sort of exception to the law, but it's a, it's a, fulfillment of the law. So I think in that way, the the stories provide us with another way to sort of refocus scripture, that if you just take the laws in isolation, it's easy to read them and come away with a particular impression of God as unbending and uncompromising with regard to the Canaanites or whatever issue, harsh issue it might be. Um, but the stories help us see what that looks like worked out in the real world in light of the totality of the law and, and of God's character. So that's another way to like think about law and narrative next to each other and to let them sort of mutually illuminate one another. So we have these lenses that are super helpful, Matt, when we look at like and trying to understand and interpret what's going on yeah. um, in the Old Testament. So let's get mm -hmm. into these narratives. Um, yeah. So we have the flood narrative where People may say, well, you have this idea of a God um, who seems evil because if he floods yeah. the world or if some people may say it's part of the world, whatever it is, yeah. Um, yeah. killing people, killing animals, things like that. Like, isn't that just like evil to do? So yeah. how are these lenses going to help us like make sense of what's going on in the flood narrative? Yeah, good question. Um, so, I mean, really an another it's not just the lenses that I advocate for in the Bible. It's in my book. It's it's also just the act of slowing down and paying attention to the text itself. So um, in terms of an, an interpretive method, um, I'm proposing like different approaches and then saying these different approaches have something to offer. But at the end of the day, we have to read the particulars of this story really attentively and carefully because biblical narrators are um, artistic geniuses and they're very subtle and and they want us to pick up on things as we read. And they also want to complicate a simplistic reading of their own story. And, and so I think like being aware of those dynamics in reading scripture is really important. Not so that we just get lost in the confusion, um, but so that we're alert, we pay attention, we're prepared to be surprised, to let our assumptions be messed up, and so on. Um, so the... I mean, there's a caveat with the flood story that's it's a debated point uh, among interpreters or for Christians, especially about like historicity of the flood and so on. And I won't get too much into that, but I'll just say that, like, I think it impinges on this question of the ethics of the story, if God actually did this in a global sense, um, or if this is drawing on known stories and reframing them within a monotheistic framework. Um, and maybe reflecting kind of local flood dynamics. I think it's the latter, but, uh, you know, Christians are kind of on both sides of that issue. 
And um, so then when we read the story, I, I see it as as a sort of engaging with these cultural stories about floods where you have in a polytheistic world, like the Enuma Elish or the Atrahasis epic, you have a protagonist God or an antagonist God who's going to send the flood because they're annoyed with humanity um, and a protagonist God who tells the hero um, to build a boat and get animals in it and survive the flood. And, and so this is, this is part of several of these flood stories. And, but in the biblical retelling, how do you tell that story when you're a monotheist? Right. And how do you how do you reframe that in light of the belief about one God? And so I think the story actually does something very ingenious in that it suggests that the antagonist in the story is violence, human violence, even creation wide violence. Um, and so we see that playing out in the beginning, the precursor to the flood itself, where we have this situation in Genesis 6 where God looks at the earth, you know, it's been corrupted and all this stuff, and he looks at the earth and it says, behold, it was, in Hebrew, it's literally ruined. So he, God looks at a ruined earth, and this is an inversion of Genesis 131 where it says, God looked at the earth, and behold, it was very good. So that this is where that kind of a, original vision of a good creation has been inverted now uh, such that now creation is undone. And, that, and it's an important point that this happens prior to the flood. So the, the earth is already ruined. And then God says, therefore, I will ruin it. <laughs> so it's this paradox then of how can God, how do you ruin something that's already ruined? And, and so I, I have like two analogies I use in the book. Um, one is of like a potter who's spinning clay on a wheel. And if you've ever spun pottery, you know that like if you're spinning it and you look down at this bowl you're making and you realize it's got holes in it or air bubbles and pieces are flapping around, that it's ruined. In other words, it's as good as destroyed. And that's what I think the assessment is on God's part. He looks at it and he's like, this cannot be what it's supposed to be. And so he resolves then to do the one thing that will enable it to be remade, which is to turn it back to formlessness. So the potter, by turning it back into a ball, turning that clay back into a ball, is not acting against the intention of what this is supposed to become, but it's actually doing the thing that's necessary for it to be remade. And so the flood, I think, in the biblical retelling is a return of the earth to its Genesis 1 verse 2 state so that God can remake it. And, and so I call it a useful formlessness. Uh, it's, it's that clay ball that, that is necessary to remake. And then in Genesis 8, it says that God's spirit or ruach, wind from God, Blew over the water, dry land appeared once again. You have this new creation story. Um, and so so I think from the perspective of the story, again, I think it's a retelling of a known story. Um, 
Um, I don't think there was a sort of global flood that covered Mount Everest. Um, but if people want to go that direction, that's fine. I'm not going to try to convince them otherwise. Um, so I think it's a retelling of that. Um, and it makes violence to the protagonist or antagonist in the story. Um, and there are other things a flood story is doing, but it, that just gives you a sample. That's really helpful. And in the time we have left, Matt, what about like the conquest narrative? Like when we look at like mm -hmm. these lenses, um, how do they make us, how, how do they help us to make sense of this narrative and what's going on? Yeah, there, there are a lot of things that the, there's so much that, that I, uh, I kind of realized as I was going through the book of Joshua deeply that this, this is a, a very rich and nuanced book that on the surface, it reads like a flat narrative, um, you know, cause you don't have the sort of depth of characterization that you have with Moses or David with Joshua. He's sort of, he doesn't have a lot of personality. Um, and, and so it's easy then, I think the book is susceptible to being read in a, in a flat way. Like God said, I'm going to wipe out the Canaanites. They go in, they kill them all, men, women, children, animals, and they get the land. Um, but the book itself actually suggests a, a lot more is happening. I already talked about the, the, the importance of Torah meditation. And the fact that it puts the story of Rahab front and center means that like, why would, it, why would it foreground at the gateway to the book the inclusion of a, of a Canaanite? I mean, that's remarkable. And then in the next kind of main story, the next battle, um, there's the issue of the exclusion of the Israelite Achan. So the, these two groups that are supposed to be on opposite sides sort of switch places where you have Rahab included and Achan excluded like a Canaanite. So the book is is telling us that it wants to get us to think about these where these lines run between who's in and who's out. That's not just about Israelite Canaanite. That it's it's about something else. That, that fidelity to Yahweh, um, and and following His ways is actually the more defining feature. Um, now that doesn't get rid of all the violence, but I think it's an important point to to consider. Um, then there are other things like the way that the beginning of the book portrays the Israelites and the way the end of the book portrays them. So at the beginning, they go into the land, they're in enemy territory, and we find out that they're uncircumcised. Now, circumcision was the defining mark of the covenant people. And any male that was not circumcised, it says, was to be cut off. So, so what are the Israelites doing as a people who deserve being cut off in the land to oust the people they're going to cut off. Like it, it doesn't make sense. So the book is, is messing with our categories there too. And reminding us that like, it's, it's only grace that enables them to be who they are. And at the end of the book too, it's same picture emerges where they're no better than any of the Canaanite people. And that Joshua has to tell them twice to get rid of the idols that are among them. Um, so the, the idols are not just out there with the Canaanites, which is the reason they're to expel the Canaanites, but they're in the community itself. So they're to do their own soul searching and thinking about who they are as a people instead of just assuming that, you know, the problems lie elsewhere. 
Then there are other dynamics. So that's just that, like at the literary level, there's a lot more going on that I talk about. Um, but as a historical point too, I think it's important to recognize that the book, um, the book is set in the in the time period of the late Bronze Age when um, I don't I won't get into all the details, but basically it was a time of imperial collapse around the whole Mediterranean world. So things were really shifting and changing at this time. Um, and, and Eric Klein, he's written a book on, on the, the, the late bronze collapse called 1177 uh, BCE. And he says that the collapse of the late bronze age was as significant and monumental and perhaps even more so than the collapse of the Roman Empire. So you had like the Hittite uh, Empire um, up into Anatolia, um, over in Greece. Things were just shifting, Egypt. And um, and so empires were losing their grip on their holdings as well. One of Egypt's holdings at this time was Canaan. So Egypt controlled the land of Canaan into which Israel was going. And that's an important point to remember that it was, it was not just uh, um, inhabited by indigenous people who had been there for generations, um, but it was actually under a different power that was controlling it through a network of city-states in walled cities. And so you had these local Canaanite kings who were backed by Egypt and exerting, you know, for Egypt's benefits. Uh, exercising a degree of control over the land. And if you look at the battle reports of Egypt, of Israel's major campaigns in the north and south, they primarily attack the walled cities, or they only attack walled cities, where historically we know these Canaanite overlords uh, dwelled, Egyptian-backed Canaanite overlords dwelled. And so I, I talk about like all the echoes of the Exodus in the book of Joshua, and I think read against this historical context, we see that the the, the so-called conquest is really the second part of the Exodus coming out from under Egyptian imperial power and, and breaking that power such that they can inhabit and live in the land. Um, and we know from the story of Joshua itself that lots of Canaanites survive this, lots of um, Canaanites even join with Israel, um, the Gibeonites as well we hear about. Um, the foreigners who were part of the covenant ceremony in Joshua 8 um, and some other people groups in the book. So, so I think reading against that context of, of breaking Egyptian power and its hold on the land is is important piece as well. Well, Matthew, thank you so much, or Matt, thank you so much for your yeah. insight today. Um, it's really helpful for me, like, and I know this is something that's probably come up for people that have like done a little bit of research into like this, like old Testament ethics, like these questions, like you have to remember the context. You have to remember yeah. the, what is scripture teaching? Um, and there's just so much going on here and we can't just like read it for 30 minutes and just make a judgment. Like there's a lot of research yeah. that goes on at this and scripture is very complex, um, yeah. which is awesome, I think. So thank you so yeah. much, Matthew, for coming on. Do you have any like last thoughts or things you want to say? Before well, we I think, um, I think another thing that's important to remember um, is that like we don't come to these hard texts and pretend we're not Christians. Um, that that like the fact that we've met Jesus to me is is important for how I read these texts. And that doesn't mean I sort of 
I sort of just put on Jesus glasses and and say, like, I'm not going to really listen to the text and just see Jesus here, right? That's a way of using Jesus to overwrite the Old Testament. But I think it's important just as a basic point to keep in mind that these, the Hebrew Bible was the formative curriculum for Jesus. Yes, he lived in the power of the Spirit, but the Spirit is constantly um, drawing him into the life of the God of Scripture. And we see that just pour out in his teachings. And so, so there's something about trusting God to work in and through the Hebrew Bible, all of its texts, all of its difficult texts and wonderful texts, um, that we can trust it to form in us the character of Christ. And, and we can look to him and see that something about this Hebrew Bible um, that he immersed himself in led him to live and teach as he did. So even though I can't always point to a specific verse and say, here's the line and arrow that points me to Jesus, all right, it's not always that simple. The whole curriculum does lead us there. And I think we can trust it at that level. And I think that's just an important point to keep in mind um, as we encounter these texts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the light of Christ is very mm -hmm. helpful um, as we go through all these questions and whatnot. So, yeah. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, sure. Really value what you do. I'll leave some links down below for the book and where people can follow you and connect with you, things like that. And yeah, that's that, Matt. Uh, how how can people follow you and connect with you? Like, where do people want to go if they want to know more about what you're doing? Well, uh, I mean, you can my look up my books on Amazon. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't. I don't tweet much, but um, <laughs> I am there. Um, and I, yeah, you can um, connect via Regent College as well. So my email's on there if you want to reach out. Um, so yeah, happy to happy to chat with people. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on. Um, mm -hmm. Encourage everyone to check Matt out. And if you are new to Hearing Apologetics, I'd encourage you to leave a like, subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you value what you do uh, or value what we do, we can you can consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Apologetics. But Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, thank you. Sure. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a good one. And God bless. We'll catch you later.